On episode 109 this week, we will be telling you why Delman Young's best historical comparison is probably Robert E. Lee. We will ask whether the Royals should suffer from Ned Dredd or whether he's the Yostis with the mostest. And we will tell you the deep political significance of this 2014 baseball run, given the impending midterm elections. You are listening to Baltimoreans, ladies and gentlemen, and you can find us on Twitter at BMorons. And as proud members of the Baltimore Sports Report Network, over there at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network, right alongside our proud Sister Wife programs. And if you like what you hear today, please go over to iTunes, leave us a review. We would very much appreciate it, and go O's! Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. As stupid, perhaps, as Tigers manager Brad Osmus bringing in anyone from his bullpen. Although let's not get quite as stupid as Royals manager Ned Yost and his decision to pull James Shields against the Athletics after only 78 pitches, I believe. All this and more on today's episode, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Really, we're going to get very stupid, though. Episode 109, is that right, Smith? We are at episode 109, which, uh, just for those keeping track at home, is the name of the most popular Hare Krishna heavy metal band. In the known universe. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Eight records sold. I actually, I actually, uh, first of all, they are single platinum, which is interesting. Really? Second of all, <laughs> I don't know that they're the most popular. I have no reason to back that up at all. Single platinum is actually my screen name on OkCupid. I kid. <laughs> I kid. Do I? You'll never know. Okay, before we talk about Ned Yost, I, I just want to touch on uh, Delman Young in the postseason. Okay. Because he's a maniac. I mean... He's a maniac. We know he's a maniac in real life. Also, I just want to point out, the day that he hit that bases-clearing double, Yom Kippur. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I don't know what that means, uh, but it means something. (laughs) No, I'll say, with half credibility, (laughs) ethnically, Mazel Tov, Delman. (laughs) Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness, I think. I don't really know. I'm half certain that Yom Kippur... I mean, it's a religious holiday, so it's sure. either about forgiveness or burning people. I think it's about deep personal reflection, uh, <laughs> which is not something that your boy Delman does a whole lot, but whatever. <laughs> Look, as long as he takes out his aggression on fastballs from Joaquim Soria, it was off Soria, right? Yes. Uh, then he he can have all of the internal internal conflict that he wants. Yep. Let's Let's just talk quickly about the Delman Young thing because Delman Young's success and look I know it's not like he's going to come up huge every single time that we put him in in a high leverage situation but Delman Young has played in the last in in the postseason for the last six seasons running sure for four different teams and I can't believe that we had the audacity (laughs) to sit here in the postseason and call the Delman Young signing a bad acquisition because there's no way that Dan Duquette 
wasn't looking at the way this team is trending and looking at the kind of clutch bats that we're going to need and people who have very strong, uh, very complex track records, not just during the regular season, but in the postseason. There's no way Dan Duquette didn't look at that and say, that's going to be something that could be huge for us. And, and like, that's something about Delman Young that a lot of people are, are overlooking. And we didn't, it didn't even occur to us because we were so busy making cheap jokes at his expense. Okay, yes. Uh, but at some point, aren't you a little bit worried that it turns out that Delman Young is actually just some sort of creepy, like, baseball vampire and he just feeds off the life of good teams? Yes. Because he hasn't ever, like, pushed a team over the top in that period of six years. He's just sort of, like, glommed on and ridden parasitically into the playoffs on six different occasions. But is there a creepier baseball vampire in the world than Raul Abanez? <laughs> and we finally have a creepy baseball vampire of our own. Who looks a lot like Donatello from the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> but So here's the other thing I want to talk about with Delman Young. Okay. Obviously, there's a postseason track record there. Yes. Let's look at the fact that the last time he went bonkers in the postseason... It was for the damn Tigers. Yeah, that's weird. It was in 2011 and 2012. And this is a thing that I think just underscores the idiocy of having a baseball podcast where you try to talk with (laughs) any shred of knowledge or awareness about what happens on a baseball field. None of us, I guarantee it, unless Delman Young is listening to this show, in which case, thanks, buddy. (laughs) Sorry for all the Jew jokes. (laughs) But keep it on the field, all right? Just keep it on the field. You know, we've all got we've all got weird shit inside us, and we take it out in in you know in healthy ways, just like you did. Okay, none of us can relate to being on a team in the most high leverage baseball situations possible with the same group of guys two years in a row, then leaving that team, and then just one year later being up against them. In the opposing dugout, these are your friends. These yeah. are people who you have spent hours and hours and hours nude with in a clubhouse. <laughs> like these are these are your 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 close homies, and now you're in the other side uh, of the field. You step up against them in a high leverage situation, and without regard for those relationships, just tattoo a ball down the left field line. It's 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 reminiscent of Robert E. Lee. <laughs> now now we're yeah, oh, it's getting weird folks it's no, I mean, getting look, weird here's a gentleman who spent his entire career training at West Point with all of the generals that he would then face after he decided to throw his lot in with the Virginians we're talking about Delman Young here right sure <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I I, I, I I think that that must have been a really weird really weird experience and as we've been saying many times you don't turn that into Sorry, I feel great about it. Okay, you don't tune you don't tune into this podcast for rigorous statistical analysis, but you may tune into this podcast for rigorous body language analysis. And watching Delman Young hit that double was fascinating because in that same play, when JJ Hardy scores, gets his hand under the tag to take the seven six lead, Nelson Cruz is so happy he does a back roll on the field. (laughs) Steve Pierce can't contain himself and is just looking randomly for people to hug. Like, everyone is so excited. Camera pans to Delman Young, 
deadpan. Deadpan. Like dead eyes. He claps once. Delman He's Young. just breathing heavily. Yeah. Now there's two. There are two potential out. There are two ways I see this unfolding. One is he's just dead inside. <laughs> I don't think that that's plausible though. I think actually he still has a connection to the Tigers, and I think actually there was a really interesting um, experience in the EPL recently. So Frank Lampard, the most visible Chelsea player isn't for many a, many years. Isn't that a character from Pinocchio? Lampard. <laughs> Lampard? Lamprey. 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 Anyway. So Frank uh, is a Chelsea player for his entire career. Recently signs with the new New York City um, ah, club. Gotham FC? Gotham FC on, on sort of as a as a tail end, you know, come over here and play some play some some soccer. Before Gotham, however, gets off the ground, he goes on loan to one of Chelsea's chief rivals and the Gotham FC um, uh, 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 affiliate. Manchester City. Okay. Manchester City plays against Chelsea, and Frank Lampard comes off the bench in the 65th minute and scores a goal against his old club. I've never seen anyone celebrate a goal less. Really? He was like, he like people came over to celebrate with him. He was like, no, not going to do it. Just like walked back to his side of the, almost had his head down. Wow. Like he is still clearly a Chelsea man at heart. Wow. And I wonder if what we saw at all from Delman was a little bit of like, I beat you guys. I don't feel great about it. Like I would have rather I got to beat somebody else. Yeah. Well, how many weird racist conversations do you think Delman Young and Jim Leland had in 2011 and 2012? Robert E. Lee comparison stands. Because <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, Jim Leland is a is a backward ass dude. I I really feel that Delman Young and Jim Leland together as a unit is the best comparison for Robert E. Lee that we have in professional baseball right now. <laughs> Disagree at Be Morons on Twitter. It's yeah. also one of those stances that it's impossible to disagree with because it's so ludicrous <laughs> yeah. that you can't come up with a better option. Yeah, everyone who has a Twitter account is like, no, no, I'm not weighing in on this in a public forum. I have a job. Let's go back for one second, if I may, please, to Buck Showalter. Okay. And his continued mastery of this playoffs. Gossman being brought in after Chen flames out. Now, that was nice. That was nice. And I, you know, I understand that you have to do something after a starting pitcher gives up five runs. So it's not as if, like, he didn't have... His his hand was, was forced in a very real way. But to trust the youngin in that high leverage situation and then to have Gossman absolutely deliver on that trust in just, you know, leaps and bounds and I think retire nine of the first 10 batters that he faced and erased that 10th batter on a double play is just spectacular. Yeah. And gives me so much confidence in Gossman that I'd never honestly never had before. We've talked a lot about Gossman being extremely exciting, but not a whole lot about him being trustworthy <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you put him in there and you're excited but you're also you know it's goss mania you're on the edge of your seat and you're <laughs> right, holding right. on as hard as you can right and i didn't like it was amazing i now he now has in his on his cv a playoff start or a playoff high leverage situation effectively which 
gave the Orioles the win. And it allowed us to have time to come back. And it took us a little while. And we were kind of, you know, stranding some people and stranding some people. and But eventually, you know, got it done in the eighth inning. And that's because Kevin Gossman allowed us to stay close. I'm not I'm not here to make comparisons. That's not what I'm here to do. <laughs> I, think, I think that's exactly what we're here to do. <laughs> I'm here to talk uh, without real knowledge about religion and baseball. Can it be an 1850s Civil War comp, please? That's That's more of a pull for me than it is for you. That's more your wheelhouse, Smith. Fair, and fair. I'm and I'm going to give that one to you. Okay, okay, <laughs> because you you know you took a lot of history classes in college, and and I'm not here to to make you feel bad about your educational background. <laughs> what I am here to do is to say I'm not here to make comparisons, and then proceed to make comparisons. Great, let's do it. I would like to name for you another American League East pitcher with a very exciting arm, but a slightly unproven track record, who in his rookie season came up huge in the playoffs. Would you like to know his name? Yes. His name is David Price. Ooh. Who, when he came up... Now, it, it's not it's not a direct comparison because Kevin Gosman obviously had his cup of coffee last year. But this officially is Kevin Gosman's rookie season. Yeah. And David Price, in, I believe it was 2008, came up towards the end of the season for the Rays, uh, had some middling appearances... Uh, during the regular season, and then was a dominant and unexpected weapon for them mm. in the 2008 playoffs. And that's, I think, what we're going to see out of Kevin Gosman this year. One of the things that I found most interesting about watching Game 1 was the way that the TBS broadcasters were talking so cluelessly about the Oriole bullpen. They just do not watch the Orioles. They, they have no idea what they're talking about. They kept incessantly referring to Tommy Hunter as the eighth inning guy. Darren O'Day, meanwhile's ears were ringing. Yeah. <laughs> probably because he was listening to Hare Krishna death metal. Because that's how that guy rolls. Um, Andrew Miller was like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but, uh, so one, you know, they clearly had no idea that Tommy Hunter actually doesn't have a confirmed role. He's more somebody who we bring in for high leverage situations, I would say in the like fifth, sixth and seventh and mop up duty when it's not a save situation at the end of the game. Um, but also they kept conveniently forgetting that we had Kevin Gosman sitting out there to do whatever we need him to do right and that's one of those things where if you're like me um i felt a little bit like you're not really you're not going to let kevin gosman get a start in the playoffs that that feels rough you've sent him up and sent him down so many times during the regular season which you know he he put on a good face about but you know frustrated him and actually uh one of the things that i found most interesting about that was the way that he handled it in the awesome interview with him that the section 336 boys did so get yeah. on over to section 336 and check that out because he speaks very candidly about it um and it increased my already sky high respect for him yeah um you know, and it felt a little bit like, uh-oh, he, he's kind of a little bit fragile emotionally. We know this about him. Uh, is not allowing him to start in the playoffs going to tilt the scales into a place where he can't function properly? And no. it turns out that it's just <laughs> another brilliant move yeah. by Buck Showalter. Because right. it gives him uh, a shut-down arm to bring in. It allows him to come in and throw 97 from his very first pitch of the game uh, and not have to use his slider at all because he can just go fastball, 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 change up, yep. fastball, 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 change up for three to four innings. Yep. And he doesn't have to make the adjustments that he has to make when he's a starter. And that's one of those things that like Buck Showalter knows when to make the 
the the sort of heart based play with his guys, uh, letting Ubaldo Jimenez pitch the fifth in the game where we clinched the division, for example. He knows how to say, "This is maybe not the best move on paper, but it makes sense. It's what I need to do for this guy right now." But then he clearly also knows how to do the the more cold blooded move, which is like Gosman. You know, you saved our season in a lot of ways. You really stepped up. Uh, you were the, the first of our starting pitchers to really step up. And, and before the rotation really started to gel, you're not going to be in the rotation in the postseason because you can help the team more doing what you did in game two. Yeah. And, you know, what I, I think is just really exciting about this Orioles team is that in previous versions of the Orioles, and I specifically think about 2012 as an example, there was um, a good team in the starting nine, but not a lot of replacement parts, not a lot of moving and sh- things you could do. There, We didn't have particularly good bats off the bench. We had a very linear Looking bullpen. Looking at you, Lou Ford. <laughs> <laughs> we had a very linear bullpen. You know, you, you could do one thing with it, and it was going to work or it wasn't. And I feel like what's exciting about this team particularly is it allows Buck Showalter, who I do think is a genius, to be a genius. Because it gives him, you know, a a lot of A or B options and not a lot of like, well, clearly it's going to be this person and clearly they have to do this in this situation. He has a lot of fairly comparable parts, which he can then match up and, and, and utilize to the best of their abilities, which is extremely exciting. I mean, we just listed Tommy Hunter, who I think would be an eighth man, an eighth inning guy on a lot of teams doesn't even have a role. We can bring him in in high leverage situations. You've got Kevin Gossman and Yabaldo Jimenez coming off of the bench, which means that you have two guys who are erstwhile starters and both have good success against this Tigers team as people in case Bud Norris or in case Miguel Gonzalez doesn't get deep into a game. And you really have the ability to shift around and bring in a Delman Young, shift around and bring in a Jimmy Paredes, whoever whoever the situation calls for, that I don't feel like, and maybe this is just a, my memory of the thing, but I don't feel like felt the same about previous Orioles teams. Were you surprised that we did not see Jimenez in the ninth uh, in game one, w- once we were up by nine? Um, I was a little bit surprised, but I think you want to keep Jimenez for the exact same situation that Gossman came in. Yeah, I think you want to keep him for the fourth or fifth inning goes badly, and you want to see if you can stretch him for three innings. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, I was a little bit surprised, but I wasn't that shocked because I think that Tommy Hunter can do that four days in a row and not have a particularly different outing. Right, and we have the day off today too, so right. so everyone will be ready to go on Sunday. So I. I you know, six one. You know, just to go back to the TBS broadcaster conversation for a second, I think one of the interesting things about being forced to deal with them and not getting to have the sweet vocal embrace of the Gare Bear yeah. uh, for these games is that sometimes they so clearly don't understand the Orioles that it's frustrating. I.e., the Tommy Hunter conversation, not even recognizing that Kevin Gosman is out there in the bullpen. But <laughs> but one of the other things that's been interesting is the way that they marvel at a Jonathan Scope say because one thing they have been correctly pointing out is like Jesus look at the size of this guy and look at his cannon of an arm because he was on that double play if you go back and look at it again I mean Cabrera was not hustling down that line but if you go back to that play he was going for the one out at second he was extended he was reaching first baseman style to get to that ball then he got it 
And then he looked and he was like, well, shit, I may as well uncork this and see what yeah. happens. Yeah. And then he just threw a fucking bazooka shot over to Steve Pierce. Yeah. And they've been pointing out his footwork at second base, the way that yeah. he'll switch feet to be able to move closer to receive the throw from shortstop or third base and then pivot right. to throw to first. And, you know, then pointing out his size and his strength. And it was making me realize, I think I definitely fell into the trap of, because I watched Jonathan Scope every day and was justifiably frustrated at his complete and utter lack of plate discipline right? Um, and the the way that he sort of refuses to make adjustments to the way that he's pitched or so it seemed. Jonathan Scope... The, you missed the evolutions. ...was defensively a revelation at second base. And when you think about the horror show that we had... Not horror show, but revolving door at second base that we had that last year where there was no stability at the position. Yeah. And when you think about the really high leverage home runs that Jonathan Scope hit so many times this season. I mean, it, it's it's an exaggeration to call the three-run home run that he hit off Masahiro Tanaka in April a turning point of the season. <laughs> but it what he did very much announce himself and the Orioles with that home run, I think it's fair to say. It was a way of saying, like, we don't care what your what the narrative on paper is this is what we're built to do and we're going to play our game as hard as we can um and yes that is over rhapsodizing uh something that happened months and months and months ago but jonathan scope hit a lot of those home runs over the course of the season and made a lot of those double plays over the course of the season and i got so used to the fact that that happened periodically that I didn't stop to think about the fact that that's actually on balance pretty special in terms of a contribution from the second base hole and the eight or nine spot in the batting order. Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that, like you're saying, you know, you you never notice when you yourself are growing taller as you're a kid because you're there every day, but then you go see a, a friend or a cousin that you haven't seen in a year and, oh my God, they've changed so much. I really think that one of the interesting parts about this TBS announcing crew is getting to reflect on what someone who has no <laughs> no knowledge of the Orioles at all thinks about the Orioles. And Scope's a big piece of that. And I think the other big piece of that is that we have a really good rotation. Like, yeah. A really good rotation. Sure do. If you, if you look at the actual numbers that our baseball players have been putting up, we all carry the baggage of too many, you know, failed Chris Tillman outings from two years ago or uh, Wei Yin Chen running out of gas last year in a very real way or the fact that we're still not totally convinced that Miguel Gonzalez is a Major League Baseball pitcher. But if you look on paper and what they've been doing since June, we have one of the best rotations in baseball. Absolutely. Which is weird. It's very weird. And, and, and you know, I, I wonder... You know, we, we talk a lot about trust on this program and how long people would need to put up certain stat lines for me to be feeling like confident <laughs> about them as players. And it makes me realize that I don't think I ever will um, in some way, because when you have someone on an, op on an opposing team, you only notice when they throw up really good lines. Mm -hmm. Like you only unless they're on your fantasy team or whatever, you only hear about. Um, everyone from Kershaw to Granke to, um, you know, uh, people, I'm, I'm just blanking on other NL East pitchers right now, but um, National League, right. You only hear about National League pitchers in my life, in the Alan Smith experience, when they have incredible games. 
but you don't hear about them when they grind out five and two-thirds innings and give up four runs because that doesn't make a headline. Right. So as a result, I think we inflate all of the opposition players mm-hmm. and deflate our own pitchers because we watch those five you know, five inning grinders. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also something very interesting to that in terms of what has clearly become the Orioles uh, philosophy around starting pitching, which is fill your lineup, fill your rotation with the five and two thirds, six and a third inning grinders. And don't worry about the fact that you don't have a stud. Because you got Kevin Gossman on the bench. Well, yes. But also, <laughs> one of the things I think has been interesting in terms of hearing the national media begin to talk about the Orioles more, in particular in the postseason, is that Chris Tillman uh, is at the front of the rotation, and they'll they'll say out loud, and Chris Tillman, you know, really doesn't get a lot of respect, but has really established himself as an ace. And it's like, no, no, he really hasn't. Not really, He's no. not. He's not a stopper. He's not like a guaranteed win. Yeah, you can't apply the term ace to Chris Sale and Clayton Kershaw and David Price and Adam Wainwright and John Lester and all of these guys and then apply it to Chris Tillman with a shred of credibility. Those aren't <laughs> the same dudes. No. Um, but they're doing that because the traditional narrative of baseball and postseason baseball in particular is that contending teams have aces. And what is not uh, apparently computing for these guys is, no, contending teams actually just have four very solid number two pitchers who aren't going to pour gasoline on the game. But and is he elite? <laughs> and, well, so really quick, the other thing I want to pivot to quickly before we leave pitching is one of the things we were we were realizing before we sat down to record today is it's incredibly exciting that Gosman did what he did in the rotation this year. It's incredibly exciting that he w- is able to come in and show the stuff that he did uh, from the bullpen the way he did yesterday. It's incredibly exciting to know that that guy's in our rotation next year. All the other guys who are currently in our rotation could still be in our rotation next year, and the Dylan Bundy dog still has not barked. Yep. And he's going to have a full spring training. In theory, he's going to be at full strength. Yep. I mean, all of a sudden... We have, and we have starting pitching. I don't want to say in excess because you can't ever yeah, have no, too much. No, 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 don't, no, don't say that. <laughs> but it's it's no longer such uh, such. A, and we have maybe Ubaldo Jimenez reclaiming some of his form from the past. Right. So you know, it's, it is definitely a going to be a very interesting spring training for the this Baltimore is, Orioles. This is the first imminent off season in recent memory that I can think of where going into. Uh, the winter meetings um, and etc. I'm not thinking to myself, man. I really wish Dan Duquette would lay out some coin for a true, a true ace. No, a true ace, yeah. I, it actually, you know, you don't want that. I don't want an eight year. I don't want eight years of Max Scherzer. I don't want eight years of John Lester. We also have, and I think this is interesting. Um, I have totally rejiggered, and let's not spend too much time talking about next year. But I've totally <laughs> rejiggered my needs for who I think we should re-sign in this offseason, mm. right? Because all of a sudden, Chris Davis is not the player that I thought we were going to need to lay out, you know, $15 million a year for, $17 million a year for. Right. All of a sudden, Nelson Cruz seems like a locker room presence, seems like people really like him, would love to have him back. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, he's going to be really expensive because he's putting up an MVP caliber year. Right. But... That would be a very interesting switch in my mind. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to see that our rotation didn't fall apart when 
Weeders went down um, and makes me realize that like, you know, I, I love Matt Weeders. I want him to be an Oriole, but I'm not totally convinced that we need him. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm also like, we should really re-sign Andrew Miller. <laughs> oh, my God. Andrew Miller is a goddamn pitcher. And there's something about this, like, Miller, O'Day, Britain that reminds me of, like, the fear I used to have of Yankees teams with Mariano Rivera at the back of the bullpen. Right. Not to say that any of those guys is Mariano Rivera. Don't, no, don't, sure. don't, 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 don't worry, Yankees fans. But is to Maybe say... Maybe the three of them together are almost Mariano but Rivera. But it is to say that that always felt like the Yankees had this advantage because they had 27 outs and everyone else had 24. Right. And that's a big fucking deal. It's huge. Because the, the pressure of the back end of that rotation means that, like... You got you got to start pressing in the seventh inning because if you're not ahead, then then you might not get ahead. Yeah, and on the flip side, you look at what the Tigers are dealing with. <laughs> a six three lead should be safe. <laughs> Joe Chamberlain, uh, so far in the ALDS, has an e- earned run average of a hundred and eight, down from infinity. Right? <laughs> yeah, because he, he actually got an out he yesterday. Recording out. <laughs> Okay, so let's move off the Orioles for a second. You wanted to talk about Ned Yost. Great. So I, I don't have a lot to say about Ned Yost, except for the fact that it seems like for all of the, the lavish praise we just spent 33 minutes um, heaping on Buck Showalter, Yost is the total opposite. Um, it seems like... The, so the decision that he made in the uh, the wildcard game to bring in... Um, Jordano Ventura. Recently used Jordano Ventura, who had thrown 70 pitches on Sunday, two days before, instead of James Shields, who you gave up a very good prospect to bring into that particular situation, and who had only given up a bloop single and a walk at that point, to make that call, and then to have it blow up so spectacularly, and then to have the Royals rally anyway, and, you know, come back from a a 6-3 deficit, says to me that, you know, he doesn't... He doesn't have the same ability to know his team in the same way that that Buck does. And then that it continues to be borne out. I think that the extra inning games that I've watched, both of them, Yost didn't make any changes. He's just like, well, I hope we keep this keeps working. <laughs> and eventually they grind out some runs because Mike Moustakis and Eric Hosmer have finally decided to go back to 2012 prospect status and hit the ball. <laughs> oh, uh- I'd, I'd like to disagree with you a little bit, okay? Um, because I think there has been so much made of the of the Ventura move in the wild card game, uh, and how the the Royals won that game in spite of Ned Yost. And I I think when you look at a team like the Royals, who are definitely carefully constructed, but are a very very delicate balance. Of skills who are only going to score just enough runs to win, who rely so heavily on defense and matchups and their bullpen and all of these things. Uh, I think it's it's a bit of a disservice to Ned Yost to say that all of that stuff is an accident. I think it's it, the ability to keep a team that is that daintily constructed, not just in contention over the course of a full season against other much more powerful teams, but also to 
to be able to find a way to win in high leverage situations, to be able to find a way to outfox managers who have a much deeper bench at their disposal. I think that speaks to something that, again, you know, to go back to this recurring theme, we just don't understand. I think it maybe speaks to an ability to understand the psychology of his young players in a way that may not make sense outside a clubhouse, but does inside. And everybody was saying, like, what have you done to poor Giordano Ventura? You know, he had just thrown 70 pitches the other day. You bring him in in relief, which he's never pitched in before, and then he gives up a three-run home run. Oh my god, his psychology is going to be destroyed for years. And then he goes out last night and pitches seven innings. I believe he struck out 10 yeah. against the team that had the best record in Major League Baseball this year. No, you know, I, I, there's, there's something there that he's clearly doing right, and you know, the devil's advocate argument here is there have been little whispers about Ned Yost's possible incompetence for years, right. and they've just gotten louder this year because the Royals are in contention. Um, so I'm not saying he is as good a manager as Buck Showalter or even as good a manager as Bob Melvin, but I do think it's a bit unfair on the part of, and I'm not saying you're the only one doing this, sure, on the sure, part sure. of the national media to decide that all of the Royals' success is in spite of a guy who has has a team in the playoffs that most uh, mo- no one on that no one on that roster hit 20 home runs, no one on that roster drove in 80 uh, drove in 80 runs. They don't have any of the video game statistics that most of the people who watch baseball uh, associate with success. And here they are with a 2-0 lead in the division series. Absolutely. And 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 he's won all three playoff games he's managed in. So that's, you know, that scoreboard Mm-hmm. Absolutely a fair call. They're there, they're in contention, and they're hitting all of the right strides. It just seemed to me that whereas um, a, a a very finely calibrated, beautifully built machine with all of the sort of buttons at his fingertips, Buck Showalter seems to be just manipulating it flawlessly yeah. and everything seems to be working, whereas it seems like Ned Yost keeps on tripping. Yeah. Which is not to say like... Again, three sample size. I don't. I, I I watched probably four Royals games against the Orioles over the course of the regular season, so I know very little about them. Um, only only what I read. And but it it does seem like you're absolutely right. This is a team that you need to know when to steal. You need to know when to play small ball because they're not going to score any other ways. And it seems like they get amazing um, success in doing that. And I think that they're the opposite of the. I think they've hit the fewest home runs of anyone in the AL. Oh yeah. In comparison to the Orioles, who hit the most. But it does seem to me that uh, watching again, this is a, a pure body language thing. Watching these three games, no one is going over talking to Yost. No one is excited when he's coming out. He doesn't. His pitchers are all arguing with him when he gets to the mound. It's true. It's um, true. You know, it, it doesn't look like he has his people in the same way that Buck does. Yeah, and it seems like I mean James Shields, that poor guy. You don't take looked, James Shields out of a baseball game. He looked just destroyed yeah. when that Jordana Ventura home run was given up. And yeah. Ventura, I mean, you're right. He came back and pitched an amazing game against the uh, against the a- Angels. So props. But he did not look comfortable. He looked freaked out, and he looked like he was wild. And then, you know, that mm-hmm. I was sitting in a bar watching that game, and he came in, and after the first pitch, two people at the bar were like, oh, he's about to give up three-run home run. <laughs> like, the, if we can all see that, 
before it happens, that seems like something. Sure, sure. And I mean, it also points at something that I think is would be particularly exciting about a possible American League Championship Series between the Royals and the Orioles, which is... <laughs> we, we have the advantage in the manager column. Yost v. Showalter <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the all of the narratives that would, would go along with that. I really want to add that I was rooting for the Royals throughout this run and I continue to root for them up until they run into the Baltimore Orioles in the in the um, <laughs> you know the championship series because it seems to me that this Royals team has a lot of comps to the 2012 Baltimore Orioles not necessarily in terms of statistical comps but in terms of like media coverage yeah. and playing with house money playing with house money absolutely and this sense that they are um they shouldn't be here because they don't do the things that you expect a playoff baseball team to do. Yeah, which is hilarious. Um, like, what? Like, bunt effectively, steal bases, play <laughs> impeccable defense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they, you know, they, they're not. They're not like you said. They're not. They're not the Angels. They're not the Orioles. They're not putting up video game numbers anywhere across the field. And instead, what they're doing is they're winning a lot of very close baseball games right. by being very good in the late innings and by getting key. Yeah. contributions from key people at key moments yeah which i i, I want to root for i mm-hmm. like I, I like that in a team and it's very clear to me that this is like this feels like the 2012 orioles to me so i was really excited when they beat the a's because i wanted this royals fan base to get more of a taste of this now, speaking- and now i'm really just a bum that we have to crush the life out of them in the next round <laughs> So, Smith, uh, we talked a lot about what's been going on on the field Yes, for our own birds of Baltimore and, and the respective animals of the other cities in this fine country. Um, how are you doing emotionally right now as we look, as we look at the, the days and weeks ahead? Well, you know, the, the reality of the 1207 first pitch on Friday <laughs> was that... I was still pretty high off of the night before, so the stress levels didn't rebuild there all that much. Right now, I'm feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like if you can get past Scherzer and Verlander and pick up two wins, you know, I think we can take one or two off of Price and, and Porcello. So I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, in terms of my own relationship to this team, the fear that I had coming in was that we were going to be exposed by taking too much time off, not playing in high leverage situations for a couple of weeks, and having an infield that didn't have any of our of our alleged stars in it. Uh, and it turns out that they have totally stepped up. So right now, uh, you know, I'm I'm my trust is there, and I'm feeling pretty confident, and. The only big problem for me personally is that I'm not getting to watch enough baseball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm going to have to go up to Syracuse, New York on on the morrow. So I will be watching the game from the shoddy internet of an Amtrak train as Ooh, I speed north. That's a depressing thought. Which is really shitty. Yeah. Uh, and I will be hoping against hope that um, 
you know, we can we can win that game. So then, then next week I can watch some games here. Sam and I have not been able to watch a baseball game together in more than a week and a half. It's very weird. Which is very odd. I'm so um, lonely. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's not working out at all. Because let me tell um, you what happens when I try to convince my coworkers who I've been on various business trips with to watch baseball games with me. They politely decline. <laughs> Yeah, the the I mean, the, there there is not a lot of support for my love of baseball in other parts of my life. Get it together, so, other people. Yeah, uh, uh, I w- I would say recently because it's the playoffs, the out and out scorn has been downgraded to gentle confusion. <laughs> gentle confusion. <laughs> uh, so you know uh, that the 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 seeing pictures of all of our all of our Orioles friends and and sister wife podcasts and etc at the baseball games and getting to be down in Baltimore watching this has been a little bit hard to take yeah because it feels like we've built this amazing community with all of you out there in Baltimoreans land and now we're not getting to be there with the sort of like key moments of that um coming to fruition in some way shape or form yeah but with that said, uh, I I am very excited and um, thrilled and hope hope that in the next round that will change. Yeah. How about yourself? Well, I, I'm just I'm having a, a longtime listeners to this program will remember uh, that in 2012 I was out of the country and without an internet connection for. Uh, all but the first two games of the American League Division Series because I had booked a vacation to Italy, of all places, um, in the broad husk of October because I had no uh, emotional familiarity with the idea that anything significant (laughs) from a baseball standpoint would be happening at that time of the month. Right. Um, so I just wasn't here and I found out about the fact that the Orioles had been eliminated in a weird espresso bar in Tuscany. Um, I'm not trying to say I have a bad life, by the way, I'm just trying to say (laughs) (laughs) because it was a wonderful trip, but I, uh, it just didn't even occur to me to do it. And from the standpoint of baseball being an important part of my life, perhaps a too important part of my life, that was very, it was, it was just a huge, uh, it felt dishonest to uh, myself in a certain way. Uh, so in contrast, this month, I'm finding myself sending emails to people who say, hey, do you want to get a drink? Like, hey, let's get dinner. I haven't seen you in a while. I'm finding myself sending emails where I say, sure, I am available on the evening of October 6th and October 20th. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll see you in November. Yep. And I'm not telling them that it's because of baseball because I feel like they'll think less of me if I do. Uh, but it is because of baseball. If any of you are listening, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, and... I, I, I really don't know how I feel uh, about the fact that I am just committing myself to be in front of a television at all costs on all evenings from here on out. Um, like, what in life am I opting myself out of? At the same time, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I was this excited. I mean, I can't remember the last time that I felt like I had this much to look forward to at the end of the day. Now. Because you're listening to this, you don't hear that and say, well, that's pretty sad. <laughs> but that's why we're here. You guys get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it. I think it's a very um, – I'm, I'm trying to square all of this, this feeling of, of wanting to be investing more in this team and see more of the games and go to the games and spend all the money and do all of these things. Trying to square that with this conception 
that my progressive liberal brain has of the male who ignores his family after dinner and goes and sits in a leather easy chair in the den and watches all nine innings of baseball and is a cold, um, you know, foreign negative perception of right. of sports fandom and that is out there you know it's out there it, not only to say that it exists in real life but it's also the baggage that i think people who are not baseball fans bring to a discussion that i have of like my sports fandom right i think people see it as that sort of like that terrible statistic that the highest rate of domestic violence in the year is always the night of the Super Bowl. Um, you know, that, that like that, that, that sports has these weird like um, if you invest too much in sports, it means that you are are, are, are emotionally devoid in other places. And, you know, I, I don't think that's us. <laughs> no. And frankly, I don't think that's the people who are listening to this podcast. I think that no, all of the friends not. and of family and people that I know have a have a, 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 a wonderful and deeply fulfilling relationship with the Baltimore Orioles that doesn't necessarily get in, way, in the way of wonderful and deeply fulfilling relationships in other places. However, that's still the baggage that I bring to that same discussion you just said, which is like, all right, well, there's three days for me to see my quote-unquote other friends for the next month. <laughs> is that weird? Is that is that okay? What does that mean for me as a friend or as a person? I guess I'm kind of okay with it right now. Um, and I guess I'm kind of okay with it, if nothing else, because it feels to me like this is, uh, I, I still feel, I still feel, even though we just talked about how great the Orioles' prospects are for the next couple of years, I still feel like this is the first and only time in the next 25 years this is going to happen. Right. So it's right. like, well, I may as well, we're not the Yankees, it's not going to be every year. I may as well do it now because who knows when I'm going to get this chance again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I agree with all of that. And I think um, another thing that, that has been interesting to me about it is uh, this will not come as a surprise to, again, anybody who listens to this show. But, uh, you know, Alan and I are both fairly politically engaged people. Sure. Alan, much more than myself. Um, but both of us, I think, have looked out at the electoral landscape uh, for the coming midterm elections and seen very grim numbers and <laughs> possibly grim foreboding, yeah. yeah, disturbing trends for the future of this once great nation uh, <laughs> before us. Um, and I, the, in previous years, uh, at this time uh, of the season, there was no season. And so I was looking at those poll numbers and those statistics and those uh, contests, if you will, and feeling uh, feeling like this incredible sense of foreboding and stress and like, what can I do to process my feelings about this? Um, which are similar feelings to what I'm having now for baseball, but that arguably had much greater implications because it's about the actual future of the country instead of a game that is played for the entertainment of a small subset of the country. And yet this year, uh, you know, I have made some, some financial contributions to candidates that I really believe in. And I have called my, uh, congresspersons, uh, several times about issues that are of great import to me. And I am okay with the fact that, that's about the most that I can do because the thing's just going to play out the way it plays out. 
And that I'm able to do that because I'm so excited about baseball. And baseball is 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 making me feel more American than politics are. Which is crazy, I just want to say, because I can actually, as a citizen, have some impact, not a large impact, but I can have some impact on my government through participatory democracy. Baseball is anything but participatory democracy. Three thoughts. Thought number one is you should also not be too hard on yourself because the 2014 midterms are a very different beast than the 2010 and 2012. Yeah. Um, if nothing else, because it feels to me after 2008 and then again after 2012 that the uh, effort was not rewarded in any way, shape, or form. So it's easy to see how one does not want to continue to go down that road. Like our system, our political system is broken, especially on a national level, it's getting more broken instead of less broken. So in some ways, these elections matter less to me because they matter less to the country because we're not going to get anything done nationally anyway. Second point is I think that in some ways that's a very disturbing thought because it actually is for me as well. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, and it does speak to me to a certain opiate of the masses that... Um, I think professional sports has always been in this country and it allows us to distract ourselves from things that are quote unquote actually important. However, going back to point one, I don't think that necessarily the national elections are the thing that we should feel bad about ignoring because I don't have any reason to believe that anyone in a national election in the next, you know, three months, anyone who wins that national election is going to make any difference at all in how our global or, or national politic plays out. I don't think that the Senate matters right much right now because I think the Senate is a broken body. And while it continues to be broken, I don't see why I should care. Um, I will say that it becomes a little bit disturbing to me when I think about whether or not it's also distracting me from the sort of local organizing and local political power base building that I otherwise do. I don't think for me that it is. I think instead of paying attention to the national elections, I'm doing my food co-op organizing and my you know socialist yeah, propaganda yeah. stuff that I, I do on the side. <laughs> but um, I, I, but so I, I think that that's a I, th I think that you can be forgiven for ignoring this one because 2014 is going to be an election when we look back in history where everyone says. And then the 2014 election happened and it just doubled down all the shit that we were already worried about and nothing changed. Yeah. And I think that we already know that three, three months out before the election. So why would you why would you get excited about that? Third point, there is a way to join these two things, and that is to purchase the Baltimore Orioles, convert them into a nonprofit serving the city of Baltimore <laughs> and make the act of watching baseball once again an act of active civic engagement. <laughs> You have been listening to Baltimoreans, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. The music now on that the show is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> the music on the show this week was, as always, uh, our theme music by Marshall York, the song Birdland by the band Weather Report, and here on the outro, Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Uh, my name is Sam Dingman. This over here is Alan Smith. And we have. Really enjoyed hanging out with you as always. Sam, what do you call um, Henry Arudia during the Orioles baseball playoff run? What do I call him? A golfer! <laughs>
Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.